like to invite you to open your Bible this morning for the Easter time in the Word of God to the Gospel according to John. We're in John chapter uh, 16 to start with. And as you're making your way there, for those of you who are here for uh, the first time or visiting, just so you kind of know how we do things around here, it reminds me of the story of one of my professors. He was quite the character, but he was invited out to preach um, in a little country church way out in the sticks, and, and he found his way there finally and made it, and, uh, and he preached the word, and uh, when the service was over, this old timer came up to him. He was, a, I think, a farmer from the area, and he came up to uh, Pastor Hendricks, Pastor Howard Hendricks, and he said, I got to give it to you, Pastor. That's the first time I've been to church for I don't know how many years where I could follow, understand, and get what it is the preacher was saying. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, well, usually we're all over the place. And, and I have a hard time keeping up. And he said, but you know what you did? You, you, you just started right there. And you just went from there right down to the next verse and the next one and the next one. And you just went right on down through there. And I was able to follow you. And uh, that story has always stuck with me, the importance of expositing the word of God. And what that means is if God gave it to us in this form, we ought to teach it in the form that it's given to us and not be ricocheting and bouncing all over the place coming up with our own fanciful ideas. I want to be, be, just be, I, I want to get something out of the way first, and then we're going to get right into it. You know, there's lots of ways to approach Easter Sunday morning message, and I guess this is what, Kathy, 30, 38 years in a row that I've had the honor and the privilege of preparing a message to preach on Easter Sunday. And I don't believe we've missed one, have we, in some 38 years? And, of course, Kathy was raised in a pastor's home, and so she's known Easter Sunday since she could walk. So um, <laughs> I won't say. <laughs> i got to watch my P's and Q's up here. But there are so many different ways to approach the message of the resurrection of Christ. And one of the ways that it's often approached is to approach it like an attorney, an investigator, setting forth a case. And we're not going to do that this morning, but, but I think just as a single quote, I'd like to get that part of it out of the way. Because I know there are among us those who, we want evidence. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead, or is that just some mythical idea that Christians have promoted down through the centuries? And... Um, this particular doctor of history taught for many years at Oxford University in England. His name is uh, Thomas Arnold, and he is a famous historian and investigator and researcher of history. And here is what Dr. Arnold said. He said, the evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be entirely satisfactory. It is good, according to the common rules, for distinguishing good evidence from bad evidence. Thousands, he says, and tens of thousands of persons have, have gone through, 
have gone through the record piece by piece as carefully as any judge summing up on an important case would do. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but just to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved with the fullest of evidence than the great historic reality of Christ, his death and his resurrection from the dead. End of quote. Now, for those of you that like that kind of evidence and like to hear that kind of thing, there you go. No extra charge. <laughs> but you know what? We ended the other night, Friday night, and I want to say too, I know many people were away and for whatever reason, we, we had about 30 of us that gathered. And I just want to say thank you to those who read. We did something Friday night different than we'd ever done before. We researched the scriptures and put together readings that gave us the chronological hour-by-hour hour events recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for what happened on the hill of Calvary, what happened from 9 a.m. to 3 and then till sunset. And I, I just have to say to those of you who practiced and read up and got ready, that was one of the most meaningful and richest communion services I've ever been in. And I just want to say how much I appreciated each of you who helped and participated in that time of, of drawing near to the Lord. But we ended Friday night basically by coming to that part of the record where Christ had given himself on the cross, he had suffered those six hours on the cross, and finally he cried, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit to the Father. And we ended that night with the Pharisees coming to Pilate, the procurator of Judea, and they requested that he would seal the tomb and post soldiers there because they were fearful that the disciples might come and try to steal the body away. And so at the end of Friday evening together, that's where we stopped. So Pilate sealed the tomb and posted soldiers to guard it and to protect it. And Friday night was over. And now here we are, the third day. And over and over, Jesus predicted that on the third day, I will rise again. No one takes my life from me, he said. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so, backing up just a little bit now to get the context for today's time. In John chapter 16, Jesus gave his disciples a promise. They, they weren't understanding that he had to go to the cross. This was his last night with them. But he gave them this promise, and I want you to see it with me before we get into chapter 20. But in chapter 16, beginning at verse 20, chapter 16 of John, Jesus said this to his own. 
Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And I believe that promise, its, its initial fulfillment was on Easter morning. They were all broken. They were devastated. They were just perplexed and in the, in the profoundest grief because not only had they lost a loved one, many of us know the pain of grief of losing a loved one, but this one that they lost in crucifixion was one that they had put all their stock in all their faith in, all their trust in, everything both in time and for eternity. They had trusted him. And now he dies on a cross, is taken down, wrapped, laid in a tomb. The tomb is sealed with what Scripture calls a huge boulder. It's sealed and guards are posted to protect it. And so that brings us to chapter 20 of John. And in this particular chapter, we're going to walk down through it together, and I'm not in making any effort to be fancy this morning. There's nothing more profound than the record of God's own word concerning what happened. And so what I want to do is in a few moments just bring to our attention, first of all, the discovery of the empty tomb, and then there are four uh, distinct encounters with the risen Christ that are recorded in the opening verses of this chapter. So here we are, verse 1 of John chapter 20. Follow along with me as I read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So it's clear, isn't it, at this point, they, Mary and the disciples did not understand or believe in the resurrection of Christ. So verse 3 says, So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the, the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. 
And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up, folded up, and placed by itself. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. I was talking to my son Josh the other day, and we often have really good conversations, good fellowship, and interaction of many, on many different topics. But I was sharing with Josh that the one thing of all the record, the Old Testament record, the New Testament record, of all of this recorded history around the resurrection, uh, the various people that were involved, both the Romans and the Pharisees and rulers and the disciples and this group of devoted women that were devoted to Christ, amidst all of these people, there's one thing missing in the account itself concerning the resurrection. Do you know what it is? The resurrection itself. No one saw it. They saw all the evidence, and then they saw and witnessed and experienced the appearing of Christ after the resurrection. And I said, Josh, it's kind of like, imagine... And we were just chatting. Imagine somewhere way up in, say, the Himalayas, the Himalayan mountains, and thousands of feet up in a tiny little crevice of a rock, there's a tiny little white wildflower with one little bloom. And no one in all creation is ever going to look at that flower appreciate that flower, and really enjoy that flower, except God himself. The same could be said, uh, no doubt, about thousands of little creatures that live in the depths of the ocean that man will never see. And the same could be true of the vast universe and a cluster of galaxies somewhere out there in distances that are completely mind-boggling, there's a galaxy out there that no one but God enjoys because he created it. And on that Easter morning, no one saw the resurrection from the dead except God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, just a footnote the stone was not rolled away from the tomb so Jesus could get out. It was so we could get in and see that he's alive. Well, that's the discovery of the empty tomb. Secondly, then, the, the, those distinct encounters that I mentioned the first one that we see on this early Easter morning is the way that Christ met with Mary. Christ 
dispels Mary's sorrow. And we see it in verse 11 through 18. Look there at verse 11. But Mary, remember now, the disciples left and they went back to their homes, perplexed, not knowing what to think. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they speak to her. It says, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take care of take care of care of him or take him away. What's going on here? Well, Mary Magdalene has an interesting story. When you study Mary Magdalene's life, you can see it really in, in four ways. First, you can see that Scripture records how she was brought from a state of terrible darkness. Darkness, paralyzing depression, turmoil, no doubt shame, guilt. She was plagued. And she is brought from darkness into deliverance when she meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're even told in Luke's gospel that Jesus delivered her from seven demons that were tormenting her and tormenting her life. By the way, oftentimes we go too far outside of what Scripture actually says. And it's almost become tradition that Mary Magdalene was uh, a woman of the night. There's really no evidence of that in Scripture. We don't know what kind of torment she lived with, what kind of darkness and doubts and shame and fear she lived with. We don't know that. It's not revealed. All we know is that she was a tormented soul, but she had met Jesus Christ, and the Lord had delivered her. So those are the first two high points of her life, low point rather, and then high point. And what followed her deliverance was discipleship. And we see in the gospel accounts that Mary Magdalene began to serve the Lord and to follow him right along with the rest of the disciples. And she ministered to his needs and, and so on. And she was growing in her walk and love and faith and devotion to Christ. But that discipleship came to a sudden stop when she was devastated by what happened on Calvary's cross. And so we can understand why Mary, having been delivered from so much and set free 
and so loved Christ and trusted him that she is there at the tomb. She doesn't even want to leave it. And so here she is just wanting to do whatever she could for his remains. To the gardener, if you've laid him somewhere, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And then we look there at verse 16. <laughs> and you know, sometimes the Bible doesn't give us much detail. And you wonder sometimes, don't you wish that when you read the Bible, that you could read it and actually hear the tone of his voice? Because when I look there at verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all it took. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. <laughs> and so, you know, we're not giving any more details. It's Mary. She turns and cries, Rabboni. And then the very next verse says, let go of me. <laughs> well, of course. Wouldn't you? Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things. To her. What a beautiful story. And all he had to do was call her by name. Can I tell you a little secret? Every single Christian, and by Christian I mean somebody who has put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they've turned from sin and unbelief and trusted in Christ. Every single one without exception has had a similar experience in their soul as what Mary experienced this first morning. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? And he said, he said my sheep know me, and I know them. And I call them by what? By name. Every believer who has come to truly know Christ and know the forgiveness of God and the new birth, the new life that he gives to the believer, every single one without exception, he has called by name. Aren't you glad? Well, secondly, Christ dissolves the disciples' confusion. So they're confused, they're perplexed, the body's gone. Mary says this, you know, she's obviously really emotional and distraught, and we're not sure what to think about all this. And we come there to verse 19, and it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced. There's the fulfillment right there. You'll be sad, but the world that hates me, they will rejoice. They will celebrate when I die. The Pharisees will throw a party. He's no longer a threat to us. Our positions and power are firmly in place. The Romans can wipe their foreheads and say, well, we won't have those massive crowds to worry about anymore. Everybody's off the hook except the sorrowing, weeping, distraught disciples who put all their stock into this one, the teacher, the Messiah. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So they're all there except Thomas. And I think Thomas kind of gets a bad rap sometimes. I can understand why Thomas felt like he did. But verse 25 says, So the other disciples were saying to him, and the idea here in the tense of this passage is that they just kept haranguing him about it. Over and over they were trying to convince Thomas that we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I wonder, I wonder what it takes for the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome your doubts, to overcome your unbelief. Why do so many people stiff arm him? He draws near, they hear the gospel truth and the message, but for some reason, of course a reason known by God, we can be sure of that, the Lord knows exactly why any person stiff arms the Lord and doesn't want him in their life. He knows exactly why. And I guarantee you, it's with a precision that even you yourself don't know. He knows. He knew why I resisted him for so many years. How about you? Yeah. I will not believe, Thomas says. Well, that's the first two. He dispels Mary's sorrow and he takes care of the confusion of the disciples and their perplexity. And then he comes again eight days later. Now, you heard me say the Lord knows why and what reasons some of us resist him. Why anybody resists him? Does he know why Thomas? Does he know what Thomas was up to? What was troubling Thomas? Of course. Look there at verse 26, how Christ restores Thomas's faith. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. But this time, Thomas was with them. 
And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and again said, Peace, shalom, be with you. Now watch what he says. Verse 27. Then he turned to Thomas. Here they are, eye to eye, right? He said to Thomas, reach here your finger. (laughs) That sounds familiar, doesn't it, Thomas? Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And we ask that question, well, did Thomas go through with those steps? Did he bother with the hands? Did he bother with the side? No need, right? No need at all. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas understood now. And anytime someone turns to Christ in in trust, they understand what even hours before they did not. What a wonder. So he takes care of Mary's sorrow and restores her joy. He takes care of the disciples and their confusion and perplexity and restores joy to them. And now he even gives special attention to Thomas and removes his doubts and unbelief, revealing himself to Thomas. But didn't I say four distinct encounters? I did, didn't I? Well, where is the fourth? Well, the fourth is right here. The fourth could be even right here this morning, depending on your response to the risen living Christ who speaks through his own word and promised to be among us when we meet in his name, that he would speak to us and draw near to us and open our hard hearts. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, this is all fine and good for Mary. She saw him. And the disciples, he he came right into their midst. That's all fine. And even Thomas. Good for Thomas. But I'm not in their position. I don't get to see him. I hear no offer to put my fingers into his hands or his side. What about me? And not only that, I'm living almost 2,000 years later. Well, let's listen to what he says. Verse 29. Jesus said to Thomas, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Listen. Blessed are they who did not see And yet, what? Believed. There it is. And now, after 2,000 years, we can't even begin to count the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have experienced that promise. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you believe in Christ this morning? Then you're among those who, in whose life that promise has been fulfilled. 
What an incredible thing. And here we are, out in the little corner of Northeast Washington, and he's still gathering people to himself. <laughs> Isn't that something? I mean, it's a rock throw from here to Jerusalem, and it's a few days past, too. And yet, here we are. He's still fulfilling his promise that if you will, you may not have all the answers, you may not understand everything, but if you'll just humble yourself, say, Lord, I don't fully understand, but I know that I need you. I know that I need you because there's no one else who's ever walked this earth who conquered death, conquered the grave, and then made a promise to me that if you'll trust me and believe in me, you'll be blessed and I'll change your heart and change your life. Just out of curiosity, I just want to see a few hands. Has the Lord changed anybody's life here? Look at that. Isn't that a wonder? <laughs> ah, he is so, so good. Well, I hope you trust in him. I recognize that becoming a Christian, the path to becoming a true believer may take some time, but you know what? When you finally take that step and have that encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, there are no steps to that. It is instant that your heart is changed. And you go from Thomas's condition beforehand to Thomas's condition right after. And you will say to the Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, if you come to him, he'll reveal himself to you. Let's pray and then Kathy's going to come with a final song. Please join me. Our Father in heaven, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're just pausing to say thank you. It seems amazing to us that you could reach down through time, hundreds and hundreds of years, even 2,000 years, and find little bitty me, and love me, and forgive me, and restore me to yourself and open my blind eyes, melt my frozen heart, open my deaf ears, and make me understand that Jesus Christ, your Son, is alive. And he's alive right here with us by the Spirit of God. So Lord, I pray and we all pray that we will more fully appreciate our fellowship with you, this saving relationship with you. And we pray for every person in our midst that if they have not yet taken that step to say yes to you, to, to, to put down their arms, to pull up, put up the white flag, to stop the resistance and say, Lord, you've spoken to me time after time and I've tried to ignore you I've tried to stiff arm you and sidestep you, and I just can't do it anymore. Lord, I need you. Please, Lord, forgive me. 
Forgive my sins. Forgive my rebellious heart. Forgive me for my rejection of you when all along you've loved me and cared for me and provided for me and I've acted like you weren't even there. Lord, forgive me. Change me. I believe. With Thomas, I believe. And I exclaim from my heart, my Lord and my God. I want to be among the blessed, the forgiven, the restored. Lord, only you can do that work. You were the only one that could do it in my heart. You're the only one that could do it in any of our hearts. Please, Lord, don't let anybody leave here lost, unforgiven, separated from you. Draw them to yourself. I pray, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.